God's Word. Why don't we take our Bible and turn to Psalm 38. Psalm 38. Well, I am, I am so glad that all of you are here because the psalm tonight is one that I'm not sure that you would pick if you were just reading through the book of Psalms and thinking, wow, what a, what a feel-good psalm. I want to study that one. And um, probably not one that is the most common to be sung or read or preached, but that's the beauty of consecutive expository preaching is I can't skip over a portion of the Word of God. So, Or if I did, you'd chase me down and say, no, you're going to preach that. So... Okay, Psalm 38, you have the outline in front of you, and I want to preach this evening on how to pray when you are sick, how to pray when you're suffering, and indeed, how to pray when you feel disoriented. So, very quickly, let's pray one more time and ask for the Lord to help in the preaching of the Word of God. Lord, now we quiet our hearts before you as our God, our Lord, our King, our authority. We know that it is your word, the Bible, that stands in authority over us. And so we need to hear this passage in your word this evening. Lord, it is my prayer, it is our prayer together as a family that that you would speak to us through the written word. That you would convict us, that you would confront us if there is sin in our lives, and that you would show us the hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 38 is a remarkable psalm because what it does is it reminds you and it reminds me of the plague of all plagues. Let me illustrate. It was in the year 1665 Uh, known as the Great Plague that swept through London. In a year and a half, one-fourth of the entire population of London died. In fact, the graveyards were so overfilled, the, the graveyards were so overflowing that workers would drive carts through the city and workers would cry out in the streets, "'Bring us your dead!' Bring us your dead. And families would take the dead corpses that were there and they would put them in the cart and they would watch the corpses be hauled off to the mass graves. It was in London during that very time that there was a preacher. And his name was Ralph Venning. Ralph Venning was a Puritan preacher. He was a, he was a faithful preacher. He was a man who loved the word, a man who preached the word, a man who loved shepherding. He cared for the poor, and before the plague hit, he began writing a book that was almost finished, but then the plague came. So, of course, everything on his writing was put on pause so he could care for his people and care for the hurting, and then after the plague had left and subsided, he continued the book. It was a 250-page book titled, The Seriousness of Sin. But originally, it was published in 1669 with a different title, Sin, the Plague of Plagues. Can you imagine that being a bestseller today? Sin, the Plague of Plagues. 
In that book, here's what Ralph Venning said, quote, Sin is worse than affliction. Sin is worse than death. Remember, he's writing just after the plague swept through London. Sin is worse than devil, the devil. It is worse than hell. Affliction may be bad, but it is not so afflictive. Death is not so deadly. The devil is not so devilish. Hell is not so hellish as sin is. The four evils that I have just named are truly terrible, he said. Affliction, death, the devil, and hell. And from all of them, everybody is really quick to say, Oh, Lord, deliver us. Yet none of those, nor all of them together, are as bad as the plague of sin. Sin is the plague of all plagues. It is the plague of all plagues. And tonight we come eyeball to eyeball with a chapter in the Bible, Psalm 38, that is going to teach that very reality. We call Psalm 38, and theologians call it, and commentators call it, a psalm of disorientation. Disorientation. It's what happens when you sin and you're disoriented in life and you're going through tough situations. It's like, here's what God does when you sin. Here's what your sin itself does to you when you sin. Here's what people can do to you when you sin, and here's what you must do when you sin. That could be one way to look at our psalm. But we find in Psalm 38, it's really quite a remarkable psalm. It's a psalm where David the author is sick, and he's sick as a direct result of his sin. That's the, that's the setting of what's going on. It, it's kind of like some of the Corinthians that were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. Remember, they were getting drunk in 1 Corinthians 11. And Paul even wrote, and he said, some among you are sick and some have even died because of their sin. Now, now l- let me be clear. Let me be clear. Does that mean that your sickness, when you sneeze and blow your nose and get a cough, and get the flu, does that always mean that God is judging you for a sin? No. No. More on that as we go through the psalm together. But what we can acknowledge is that sickness, whatever it might be in our lives, is always an indirect consequence of living in a fallen world that is infected by sin. Genesis 3 and Revelation 21 talks about that. So how do you pray? How do you pray when you've sinned and you know you've sinned and you feel like the hand of God is pressing hard upon you? It's like like you know that God is disciplining you. You know that you're being chastised by God because of your sin. How do you pray when that is a situation in life? When you feel the sharp arrows of the Lord piercing you. Psalm 38 just maybe might be a commentary on Job 6 verse 4, which reads, the arrows of the Almighty have sunk deep into me. Have you ever been there? Can can you relate to David where you just feel like you're just standing there and God is shooting his arrows of discipline at you? Have you been there? Can you relate to that? Psalm 38 
gives us, I think, a model prayer. The whole thing is a prayer. It's a model prayer for how to pray when you're sick, when you're suffering, when you are disoriented. How do we pray? Let's walk through it. We'll read it as we go, okay? Look in your outline, number one. God, you see my sin. Look at verse one. Psalm 38, verse one. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me and your hand is pressed heavy on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long for my loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Think of these interesting words in the opening of the prayer. God, you see my sin. God, you know what's going on. You see everything about me. Remember Job 31 verse 4. Does not God see all of my ways, Job said? Or Jeremiah 23, verse 24, when God said, Can a man hide himself so that I do not see him? Answer, of course not. Verse 1, David can sympathize. Oh, Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, rebuke me not in your wrath. Chasten me not in your burning anger. He's begging, he's pleading with God, acknowledging that he's being rebuked, acknowledging that he's being chastened. And he gives the reason, verse 2, it's painful because it seems like God's arrows have sunk into him. Your hand, verse 2 ends, is pressed, pressed down on me. Verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. We call it a psalm of disorientation because that's what it is. David is utterly disoriented. He's sinned, and because of his sin, he's physically afflicted. He's relationally suffering. His enemies, we're going to see later on, are going to take advantage of him. David acknowledges, I'm being disciplined for my sin. God, your hand is heavy upon me. But as we look through the psalm, do you see in verse 3 there, there's no soundness in my flesh. There's no health in my body. At the end of verse 3, there's no health in my bones. Verse 5 even says, my wounds are growing foul and festering. Verse 6, I am bent over. And I'm greatly bowed down. Verse 7 even adds the physical pain. My loins are filled with burning. Verse 8, I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of agitation. Heart pain is the idea. Verse 10, my strength has failed. Wow. Here's a guy who is physically physically affected. 
and spiritually under the discipline of God. Like a father who disciplines his son. So the Lord disciplines those whom he loves for their good. Hebrews chapter 12. Now, the, 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 the reason we have to ask is, well, why? I mean, this is pretty intense. I mean, it's physical pain. It's internal heart pain. It's, it's no strength. He's crunched and bowed down. He, he is hurting. He is in pain. Why? Look at verse 3. Do you see it at the end there? Because of my sin. Do you see it? In verse 4, my iniquities have gone over my head. David says, I know why I'm suffering. It's because I've sinned. Plural, my iniquities. And then verse 5, I want to camp here for a sec. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my... Now, I have folly in the New American Standard. You see that at the end of verse 5 there? Because of my folly? Interesting word in the Hebrew. It's often translated in the Psalms, folly or foolishness. You know the word, and the children know the word, because we tell our children often not to say this word. It's translated stupid. Stupid. Well, what does that mean? The Hebrew idea is thick-brained. You're stubborn. You're, you're acting foolishly. You're, you're acting stupidly. What does that mean? Listen, listen. It's not intellectual. You know, a, a young boy or girl might call someone stupid. That is not polite, nor correct, nor appropriate. This is not an intellectual statement. The word stupid or the word foolish here is you are morally, morally lacking sense. You are morally deficient. It's not an intellectual statement. Somebody could have a PhD and be a fool. Here's somebody who is corrupt morally. It's, it's like he identifies himself when he opens his mouth. He talks without thinking. He doesn't restrain himself. Moral perversion, moral folly. David says, that, that's me. That's what I've been doing. Now, amazingly, we don't know the exact situation in his life. Like, we don't know what happened. We don't know the sin. We don't know exactly what prompted the writing of this. But we know in verse 3, he sinned. We know in verse 4, he's committed iniquities. And we know in verse 5, it's because of his moral foolishness. God, you see my sin. I've sinned. There's something about suffering, isn't there? That when we are suffering, we do well to examine our hearts. We do well to examine our hearts and see if there's a wayward way in, in us. I, I, I think of what happened to Uzziah. Remember the story of King Uzziah in the book of Second Chronicles? He was a, a super prosperous. I mean, he was a, a wise, engineering, brilliant king of Judah and the text says that he became very strong in his kingship. I mean, borders are expanding. The military is powerful. He is wealthy. His name is reaching far and wide. 
But when his heart becomes proud, he was unfaithful to God and he entered the temple. Remember the story? He enters the temple to burn incense, but God said only the priests should do that. But he's not a priest. He's a king. Well, Uzziah doesn't care. He goes into the temple and God struck him immediately. God disciplined him immediately with leprosy because of his sin. The text even says in 2 Chronicles 26.20 that the Lord had smitten him. Why? Because of his sin. Because of his sin. Now, I want you to look in your outline with me because we have to ask the question, why does God allow sickness? Why does he allow it? I mean, you and I, maybe the obvious example, we could all talk about Job and say, here's the righteous man, the most righteous man in the East at God's own approval. Look at the life that he had and the suffering that he had. Why does God allow this? Number one, you see it there because of our sin. It certainly can be that way. It can be. It can be because of a sin. And always, number two, it's for his own glory and for the outworking of God's own good plan. Number three, another reason why God allows sickness and suffering was to allow Christ to heal miraculously at that time in his ministry to validate his claims and to prove his messiahship. Another reason, fourth, why God allows sickness and suffering, number four, is to allow other saints to pray fervently, and then God will heal you in response to those prayers, and that increases praise. Interesting. Maybe God brings suffering and ailment and affliction in my life for the purpose of other people praying so that God can providentially answer that prayer, and we give thanks and give him glory. Number five, another reason why God allows sickness and suffering is to teach and mature believers through persevering. Number six, another reason why God allows sickness and suffering, Jonathan Edwards wrote the most and the finest on this one. He allows sickness and suffering to cause you to consider the pains of hell. Illness, as bad as it may be, and as painful as it may be. Oh, for a child of God, it never, ever even comes close to pondering the pains of hell. Another reason God allows sickness and suffering, number seven, is to cause you and me to anticipate afresh the the nearness and the anticipation of, of heaven. When there is no more sickness and pain. David, David in our psalm, boy, he's suffering. And he knows that he's suffering because of his sin. And he says, God, you see my sin. How do you pray? Number two, look at this. It's hard. It's hard. We we have to just acknowledge that. The Bible is real. The Bible is honest. God, you know my struggles. Look at verse 9. Follow with me in your Bible. Verse 9. Lord, all my desire is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. 
My heart is throbbing, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. Verse 11, it gets worse. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. Even my kinsmen stand afar off. Those who seek my life lay snares for me, and those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction, and they devise treachery all day long. You know, when I read Psalm 38, you know what comes to my mind? Man. Here's a guy who seems like his life is falling apart. I mean, I mean every sphere of life. I, I mean, he, he's spiritually in pain. He, he's got heaviness from God's hand upon him. He's got emotional pain, relational pain, physical pain. Even his enemies are rising up against him. I mean, how much worse could it get? I, I can't help but... Think of the church of Thyatira. Remember them in Revelation chapter 2? It's the sin-tolerating church. Revelation 2, 20 to 23, they were tolerating a woman called Jezebel. Whether that was her real name or if it was a title from the Old Testament woman Jezebel, whoever she was, she was a false teacher. And she was immoral. And she was disobedient. And God told her to repent, but she wouldn't. So here's what God said. I'm going to bring sickness to her. I'm going to bring great tribulation to her, trouble to her. She went through great struggle because of sin. But you know what? For the child of God, hear this. Suffering is the form of discipline in God's school of righteousness. If we want to grow in being righteous, morally righteous, in the right conduct that God wants us to have, suffering is a form of discipline and learning in that school. It's not easy. And the struggles can be tough. God knows it. So be honest with the Lord. Tell him your struggles. Unload your burdens upon him. Now, we saw it here in the psalm. Did you see it there in verse 9? I mean, emotionally, David is struggling. My desire is before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden. I mean, I'm just sighing before you, Lord. Verse 10, he's struggling with weakness. My heart is throbbing. My strength is failing. Even my eyes are diminishing. Verse 11, he's struggling with loneliness. His own family. I mean, his own beloved family, his kinsmen, are abandoning him. Verse 12, he's struggling even with opponents. Even those who want to kill me are taking advantage of me and my suffering. What do you do? What do you do when you're struggling like this? When it, when it gets so bad and you don't know where to go and you don't know where to turn? 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Well, what do we do when we're struggling? We cast our anxieties upon God. Because he cares for us. Speaking of struggles, I remember reading a biography of John Flavel. 
one of my Puritan heroes, John Flavel in the 1600s. As a young boy, his parents were arrested and put in prison. While they were in prison, they caught a disease. Though they were released from prison, they died shortly after. John Flavel, when he grew up to manhood, he married his first wife, died in childbirth along with the baby. Then he married again. The second wife died. He buried her. He married a third time. The third wife died. He buried her. He was what is called in Puritan terms a nonconformist minister, meaning he didn't conform to the Anglican Church of England and how they wanted to do worship. As such, he was constantly hounded and persecuted and oppressed by the authorities in England at that time. I mean, Flavel knew struggles. He knew it kind of like David here. And what did Flavel say? You have to know four things. You have to know, number one, God is sovereign. You have to know God is sovereign. He's in control. Number two, you have to know that God is working everything in providence. Providence. He is working everything out for good. Third, you need to know that afflictions are not eternal for God's children. Isn't that good news? Afflictions are not eternal for God's children. They might, they might be lasting, but they're not eternal. And then fifth, we need to know that afflictions he said this, are a treasure of blessing. Can you imagine that? He said afflictions are a treasure of blessing. So Christian, as we learn how to pray in Psalm 38, what, what, what do we need to know? What do we need to do? How do we learn from the template of David? Well, number one, God, you see my sin. Number two, God, you hear my struggle. You know my struggles. Now, let me give you number three, and we'll kind of conclude with just wrapping up the rest of the psalm. Number three, God, you hear my supplications. Now, I want you to look at verse 15. I'm going to skip through some of this section a little bit for the sake of time. Look at verse 15. Here's the key. You got to get here in affliction. Verse 15, for I hope in you, O Lord, for you will answer, O Lord, my God. There are three titles for God in this psalm, in this verse. If you see in verse 15, I hope in you, O Yahweh, Jehovah, all capitals. The word hope means wait. I am watching. I am waiting. I am obeying. I am actively pursuing you, but I don't get it. I don't get why I'm suffering this long, this way to this extreme. And then in verse 15, he says, you will answer, O Adonai, meaning you're the Lord, you're the master, you're the sovereign. And he calls him God, the Almighty, the Almighty. You have to get to that point in the suffering where you say, I hope in you. I will trust in you. I will actively, aggressively, regularly, daily anchor my trust in God. This is not passive waiting. This is active obeying. And then just skipping a little more, look at verse 17. When I'm ready to fall, 
and my sorrow is continually before me, for I confess my iniquity, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. You know what is so beautiful about this? In verse 17 and 18, David says, I'm going to confess. Christian, there's hope there. I'm going to confess. And then in verses 19 and 20, he acknowledges that the ungodly are after him. And then at the end of the psalm, he's going to plead, 21 and 22, Oh God, I need you to help me. Don't be far from me. Let's, let's dwell for a moment, though, on verse 18. Okay, so we're suffering, we've sinned, we're disoriented, we, we, we feel like God's hand is upon us, we feel like we're being afflicted, and we feel like we're being punished, and di- not punished, dis- um, disciplined by the Lord because of our sin. What do we do? Verse 18, confess your sin. Let me give you the Hebrew meaning of this because confession is very important for the Christian. I will openly declare my sin to God. That's confession. Now, repentance is following confession with a change of heart and mind and life. But confession is, I'm going to tell God my sin. I'm going to make known to God my sin. I'm just going to publicly declare in the outright all of it. I'm just going to call it what it is to God. Coming clean. It's acknowledging where you've strayed. It's owning it. It's owning it. Confession is not blame shifting. Confession is not excuse making. Confession is owning it. Lord, here's what I've done. I sinned in this way. Lord, I'm guilty. It's like we're telling the all-knowing God what we've done. We're not informing God of something he doesn't know. We're humbly coming to God and acknowledging what he already knows. Now, the reason that I wanted to camp there as we draw this even to a close is, Christian, when you confess your sin, even in a situation like David where you know that you've sinned and you know that there's iniquity and you know that you've acted foolishly, foolishly like, a, like a thick, stubborn-headed fool. When you confess your sin, do you know what God does? The Bible says that the Lamb of God takes away your sin. The Bible says that God forgets our sin and he will not hold our sin against us anymore. The Bible says in Isaiah 1 that he washes our sin away. The Bible says in Isaiah 43 that God blots out all of our sin. In Isaiah 44, God wipes out our sin like a cloud. Isaiah 55, he pardons all of our sin Micah chapter 7, he buries them and throws them into the depths of the ocean. Christian, come to this God. In times of affliction, 
in times of suffering, in times where you feel disoriented and like God's arrows are coming into you because of your sin, confess. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, our God is so faithful to forgive. This, this is gospel hope. I mean, this is a good God who disciplines those whom he loves so that we might share his holiness. What a God. What a gospel. What a God who forgives. And he was very quick before we, we, we close here. If David, if David suffered like this, feeling the divine arrows going into him, how much more? did the greater David suffer when the divine arrows actually went into his soul? And and he bore the wrath of God, not not for his own folly, but but for my folly and for your folly. That God would make him who knew no sin to be sin for us. What an amazing, Amazing gospel savior. Christian, in our suffering, we always have a place to go. And that is to the throne of God. We always have a place to go. Unbelievers don't have a place to go, but we do. We have a place to go always, always, always. And we can run to the throne of God's almighty grace. Find mercy and help in a time of need. Psalm 38 isn't necessarily a feel-good psalm, and nor is it one that you might read on your own and think, wow, I want to turn that into a hymn and sing that. But what, what a real-to-life psalm. What, what a needed psalm. So when you're suffering, when you're ill, When you're sick, when you feel disoriented, come back here and take this prayer and bring it to the Lord and he will hear you and he will answer your prayers. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you that even in the times of difficulty, which might be for sin, It might be for a sin that we've committed. It might be for folly that we've committed. Or perhaps, Lord, maybe it's just sin, your good and wise and loving and sovereign plan. When the illness comes, when the disorientation comes, bring us back to scriptures like this, where we will anchor our hope in you, our covenant-keeping God. Thank you that you are faithful and that you are reliable. In Jesus' name.